Hello and welcome to another episode of The Long View. Uh, I'm Jeff Gamble, and today I'm pleased to be sitting here with uh, Justin Nordstrom, a friend of mine, Just Nord on Board Game Geek. And our subject today is going to be a game called Paths of Glory. This is going to be a little bit of a departure for me because actually this is a game that I have not played. So I'm going to be kind of sitting in the host chair talking with Justin about this game because in all of the years uh, that I've known Justin, this has been the game that he talks the most about. Um, I have a little bit of experience with card-driven war games um, like Washington's War, Twilight Struggle, if you want to call that a war game, but we're not going to get into that. Right. And uh, so I have some basic ideas of the flow of these kinds of games, but I wanted to talk to Justin about it and, and ask him if he would sit in with me today simply because th this is the game that I just keep hearing about. I've heard about this one for years. So, Justin, uh, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about Paths of Glory as far as who the designer is, who the publisher is, and maybe just a, a real brief one-minute kind of synopsis of, you know, what the game is? Sure. So I, I want to start by saying that first, first thanks for having me. And uh, I want to say that Paths of Glory is my favorite game. It's not my favorite war game or my favorite uh, complex strategy game. It's just my favorite game. So uh, first, a disclaimer, this is not going to be uh, an unbiased uh, presentation. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do want to have a little comment at the end about the type of people that might be attracted to this game and people for whom you know this is, would be one to avoid. Um, and so second, this is also not going to be a rules description, um, just like you did with Thunderstone. This is going to be kind of an overview of the game, and there's many, many places, especially on BGG, that you can go to get some good information about specific rules. So that's not what I'm going to present today. Um, but to answer your question, so Paths of Glory is a two-player game that depicts the major historical events of World War I. It was published by GMT Games in 1999. It was their first CDG, so now it's 13 years old. It was designed by Ted Ray Sear, who's published several great historical games, uh, many of which focus on World War I or World War II. And at the end of, uh, maybe at the end we could have a little time, I have a couple other suggestions from his kind of uh, uh, game design library that might be a good match for people. That sounds great. That sounds great. So uh, first thing I want to uh, ask, I, I try to ask this on all the episodes, is mm -hmm. what is it about this game that initially attracted you? Mm -hmm. What was it that made you want to buy it? What, what, what was it that in, initially piqued your interest? Sure. Well, um, there's two reasons why I would say this is my favorite game. Uh, the first is uh, there's a balance between historical theme and variety of choices. And, and this is tr what's true of all historically themed games, and Paths of Glory, as I said, relates to the events of World War I. Uh, is that the game necessarily you know, shrinks your available number of choices because it wants to have you experience the sense of uh, limitations that the historical figures experienced. Uh, but Paths of Glory uh, has a really great trade-off. To make a game uh, that fits the historical conditions, designers sometimes limit your number of choices, but Paths of Glory has so many choices, which makes the game both fascinating to, to learn and to study, but also really overwhelming, I think, when you're first getting started. I should also point out at the very beginning that Paths of Glory has uh, about an eight-hour playtime. So you're talking about a real investment of time in order to learn the rules, but also in order to play through a complete game. And so one of the reasons I really like the game is that it's it it feels historical, but it doesn't feel like it shoehorns you into an experience of history. So it's not funneling you, right? Correct. Because I mean, there, there are some games that I know that you know even yeah. you and I have played together where... Mm -hmm. Uh, there, there's almost some choices that you, you can't make mm -hmm. or some choices that, that are almost kind right. of made for you right. in order to fit the historical context. So right. um, now it, one of the other things that, that I wanted to ask you about is, is this one of your favorite games? Or actually you said it is your favorite game. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I found from playing with you is that you really don't like the uh, tactical level. Mm -hmm. You right. prefer the operational exactly. level. And and so do you feel that that maybe some of these – I think that from what I've seen in my limited experience with war games, the mm -hmm. tactical games are usually the ones that give you a greater amount of freedom because aside from the initial sort of troop level or deployments mm -hmm. or, or the units, I guess uh, you, you would say, that you have available, mm -hmm. um, you, you pretty much have a lot of freedom mm -hmm. from that point on in that game. Mm -hmm. uh, it also has a shorter playing time. Sure. Uh, there, there's usually some more variety and, and, and your sort of scenario set up mm -hmm. where this is a very much an operational mm -hmm. level game, yes? Well, actually we say 
strategic level game in that it's it's very vast. And actually, that was one of the other things I really like about the game. Um, I really can't speak much about squad level games. I think it's just not it's not my thing. So I couldn't say whether ASL has a more I'm sure it does have a more in depth rule set than Paths of Glory. Um, it comes in a binder. Yeah, there so you I go. would imagine. Right. And, and not, well, not only that, but to, to your earlier point about the. Um, you know, there are there are a lot of elements of Paths of Glory that do force you to make certain choices. And but what I'm saying is that the overall number of decisions that you need to make is is extremely large. I think more so than other card driven games. And so it doesn't. Even though there are rules, for instance, that everything from when Russia's out of the war to when America's in the war, even the a series of you know, half dozen restrictions about what you can and can't do in the first turn alone. So there are a lot of those elements, but to me, it doesn't feel con- constrained because I have so many decisions I need to make. I guess well, that's what is I'm it saying. the decisions you need to make, or is it the decisions that you can make? That's sure. kind of you know that uh, they're, they're two different things. So what which is it? Is it yeah. is it that there's a lot of decisions that you are free to make on yes. your turn, or is it that there's a large decision it's space? The, it's and... that you want to do everything, and and you and yet you have to decide you know how you're going to be most efficient in doing those things. Um, and so that's the other thing I really love about the game, and that is the the level of mental engagement. I mean, there's so many reasons why we you know pursue this hobby instead of bowling or ceramics or something and but one of them has got to be i mean alongside the collecting element alongside the social element there's also the element of, of mental engagement and for me i mean when i play paths of glory that's when my all my synapses are firing and that's when i feel like it, i'm really on the edge between really loving the game and being so frustrated i don't want to play it anymore and, and that that frustration might lead some people to sort of simply say look this isn't the game for me but it's one of the reasons I really like it. It's so engaging. Um, and so uh, two quick things. You know, the theme of the podcast here about longevity, um, I did a little looking here. And uh, as I said, the game came out 13 years ago. And when it first came out, in the first couple of years, it won a lot of awards. So here's the kind of uh, award case for Paths of Glory. It won the 1999 Charles S. Roberts Award for Best Pre-World War II Board Game. This is the significant award for the board gaming hobby. It won the 2000 International Gamers Award, so outside of specifically identified war gamers, it also won an award just overall for best game. And then the 2001 Games Magazine, Games 200 Best Historical Simulation Game. And so that's an even broader audience. I mean, so if you're talking about a small nucleus of, say, war gamers, and then a broader audience of just board gamers, and then an even broader audience of the kind of gaming public, people that would read Games Magazine, but might, you know, uh, might be sort of new to, to games themselves or might not be what you would consider, you know, grognards or whatever. I, I think, so when it came out, the game received a lot of accolades, but what I think is even more remarkable is that in the 13 years since, you know, this is a podcast about longevity, and so I thought it was relevant to point out that uh, on Consum World, which is the uh, ward gaming website, Paths of Glory has received 21,115 posts about the game, all the way back to 1999 when it came out, and there's more than two dozen posts this month alone. And uh, so on one hand... So it's hand, still active. Correct, it's yeah. There's people game. that are still playing and discussing the game. There's also um, over 160 games being played on ACTS, this uh, online version, a website that right, implements the right. game. So that's that's kind of the the big point here, is that even if you're, you're, you don't... You have moral problems about playing a war game, or even if you're not... Even if an eight-hour play time... Uh, isn't something you're interested in, I do think that it speaks to the broader theme of the podcast, which is right. to uh, experience and, and realize that the the best game that you have or the best game that you could play may not necessarily be the one that just showed up in a shipping box from UPS that morning. You know? Well, I'd like to touch... I'd, I'd like to go back, though, and touch mm-hmm. uh, on, on something that you said, which is that, you know, given the awards that the game has received, mm-hmm. right, and and... You, you you mentioned that you felt that this game actually had some crossover, and I I, mm-hmm. I kind of found that idea interesting as you mm-hmm. said it because everything about this game says there should be no crossover here. Right. When you look at the the dawning nature of the playtime, okay, yeah. that's one of the only reasons I haven't sure. tried it yet. I, I've I've had it in my my cart mm-hmm. or trade list. Uh, I don't know how many times ready to pull the trigger, knowing that you know this game and mm-hmm. and would would love to play it. 
But, you know, honestly, the playtime alone, it's okay, well, when are, when are Justin and I going to have eight hours and we can sit down? And, right. and honestly, you know, as a first-time player, um, that's going to go one of two ways. Either it's going to go even longer than eight hours right. or it's going to be over really quickly. Exactly. One of the two. So, uh, you know, it, 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 there's such a huge investment in time, in rule set. Right. That I, I'm I'm kind of curious as to if there's anything else that you can hang your hat on that would explain why Paz Agoy. I mean, when you look at the BGG Top 100, uh-huh, yeah. I mean, there there was one point in time where I think Paz Agoy was up. Where was it? It was like in the in the 20s or 30s. I mean, well, it was it yeah. was way up there. So so right now you're exactly right. So right now Paz Agoy is ranked 23 overall in BGG. And and we both realize, Jeff, that there's serious. I mean, you can't base what you're going to play based only on ratings. I mean, no, we, no, we no, both obviously not. But again, the right. game's been there for so Correct. long. For a 13 year old game, number 23 is not that bad. No, no. Um, and and well, here's what's also interesting. So for the purposes of longevity, there's only two other games on BGG that are rated higher than Passive Glory and that are as old as that game. You want to guess what they are? Games that are um, older than 1999 that are. Ranked Older better than 23. Than you didn't um, know there was going to be a quiz on your own podcast. I'm, I'm thinking, uh, how about El Grande? Because yes. that was 95, yeah? Correct. 1995. Uh, I got a little bit of a num- geek badge there. number 13. All right. And All right. Uh, what's the other one? Do you El remember? Grande. Um, this one's even uh, older. Uh, 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 when, when did Tigris and Euphrates you go? go? You got did it. I get it? 1987, Fantastic. number 15. So either yeah. means I got a lot of geek yeah, knowledge or I spend way yeah. too much time on the computer I, I looking say, at rankings I that say, I probably should now, look at. Now, you know that on, on BGG you can also identify, you know, do a pull-down based on game genre. So for war games, this is even, Paz of Glory ranks even better. It's number three overall for war games on BGG, and it's behind only Twilight Struggle and War of the Ring. Um War it, of the Ring is listed as yeah, a Yeah, War game. of the Ring Collector's Edition. And so, interesting. Yeah, okay. so what's what's interesting here is that, okay, again, we're talking about a 13-year-old game. Mm-hmm. It's received a great deal of press and, and positive accolades when it first right. came out. And it also, you know, it continues to be well-received today. And, I mean, back to your point about crossover, I don't know why the game is, is so popular um, or why it's so well-ranked. I wonder if a lot of people um, see it as a good game because they've played it a few times, but have the same problem that I have getting it to the table. I should also point out that I play this game predominantly online. I'm, I'm in an online game right now. Okay. And so um, an online game could take months or the better part of a year to play. And uh, I, I really like it. And, you know, one of the, the... I think the time that I first realized this is my favorite game was when I realized I'd just been staring at the map. I wasn't playing an actual live opponent. I was just playing an online game. And I was staring at the map for... must have been 20 minutes. And I thought to myself, wow, because I was mentally thinking about what am I going to do and what's my opponent going to do and then well if he does this I'll do that and so much of the game spent time spent playing this game is actually me staring at the map board wondering what I'm going to do next and so, right. yeah right. and so I mean the play time is is a major factor but I, I think that online play mitigates that and this is something I was going to get to later but if I couldn't play this game online if they shut down ACTS I wouldn't, this game wouldn't be my favorite game anymore. And so part of me wonders, is it my favorite game because I can play it online or do I play it online because it's my favorite game? And I, and I guess I'll, I really don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting yeah. uh, distinction. I mean, mm-hmm. because, but, but you've had the opportunity to play it so much right. that I would tend to think then that if there was something in the game that, that eventually became stale to you mm-hmm. Uh, or or became something that you know you just no longer enjoyed. You would stop playing it, whether right. you could play it online or not. So right. I, I would probably you know listening to you talk, I, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd probably say that it, it probably just is your favorite game, mm-hmm. and that it's actually uh, fortuitous that mm-hmm. that you have the opportunity right. to play it online right. because otherwise you know unless you go to the WBC and mm-hmm. enter the tournament, right. uh, or you know unless you have uh, some other friends who are really dedicated uh, you know war gamers. Right. What what do you say to you know, I, I'm I'm still picking at this like a mm-hmm. like a dog with a bone because I, I'm still trying to figure this out. I'm trying mm-hmm. to figure out whether the high ranking is due to reputation mm-hmm. or the high ranking is due to something inherent in the gameplay. Because I, I I'm I'm still trying mm-hmm. to figure out why a game this complicated. Because mm-hmm. you you know you've told me there's still things in the rule set that yes. you're still finding. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so it's not like uh, you know a game that you can easily pick up. There's mm-hmm. a barrier. Yeah. It's a game that has an enormous playing time. There's a barrier. Right. It's a game that only plays two, which for many right. people there's a barrier. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Um, so, you know, you, you have this game that has all of these inherent mm-hmm. barriers in it, and yet it's really highly regarded. Yeah. It, does it have anything to do with the card play? Maybe. Is, um, is there something different about it yeah. than, say, Washington's War or mm-hmm. Twilight Struggle or Hannibal? Right. Uh, you know, Rome versus Carthage. Mm-hmm. Is there is there some sort of... Is there a difference to the yeah. way the cards work uh, in Pathogory? Absolutely. 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 So the... Uh, well, I want to get back to the idea of why it's ranked so highly, but to compare it to other CDGs, this, I think, is one of the reasons why people do uh, consider Paths of Glory. Uh, it's similar to, although I would say a step up from the other CDGs. You could draw a direct... Now, Paths of Glory was not the first CDG. That was We the People in 1994. But uh, Paths of Glory is a significant, I think a greater, a more intense card-driven game. Maybe I would say even the most intense card-driven game. And why? Why would uh, that be? The The major reason is that, say in Washington's War, you can play a card in generally three ways, right? You can play a card to place political influence. You can play a card to move and have soldiers fight, have soldiers move and fight. Or you can play a card, some of them, for a combat card. In Paths of Glory, you can play a card as an event. You can play a card uh, for strategic redeployment, which means that you can move small numbers of soldiers great distances on across friendly terrain. You can play a card for replacement points. Think of this as resurrecting a soldier that's died. Uh, you can also play cards for combat cards. Some of the cards that you play for events go away. You remove them from the game after you so play So they're one-time only. Yeah. Correct. Right. And, and that's significant because the other important factor is that in Paths of Glory, there are individual decks. Right, so the, the two sides, the allied powers, basically Britain, France, and their allies, they have one set of decks. They have one set of three decks. And the central powers, Germany, Austria, and their allies, have another set. And so you're not playing with the same set of cards. Uh, Paths of Glory has a concept called war status. It, may, it reflects your side's commitment to fighting in war. And the more committed you are, the higher your war status, the more you're eventually going to be able to add in other sets of cards. Think of this as the mid-war and late-war cards in Twilight Struggle. Right, right. Yeah. But instead of adding all those cards at the exact at one specified time, you're going to add those cards when you've played enough events to move up that war status number. The war status number is important for a couple reasons. First, some major big events, like the Bolshevik Revolution, are only possible at a certain uh, war status level. But also because if I am playing more cards as events, then I might be adding the limited or total war cards earlier than my opponent. And so the downside, of course, is that by playing cards as events, you don't, uh, you're not getting to play them for operations. You're not getting to have your soldiers move or reinforce uh, you're not able to play them for replacement points or something. So playing cards as events is really important uh, because it's also part of this kind of mini-game within the game, and that is uh, card coloring. Because I have my own individual deck of cards, if I play a, a worthless card, let's say the event isn't even important to me, I might play it both for war status, but also to get that, like say, two-value card. Cards are number two through five get that two-value card out of the game so that when I recycle my deck again and again, I'll be able to draw better cards. And so there's there's this real... Uh, one of the reasons I, I mentioned before that it has so much intensity and you're always thinking is sometimes you're not thinking, how am I going to move these soldiers to this place? You're thinking, how am I going to get rid of this worthless card from my hand so I don't see it again? So there's almost an element of deck building in this, then. Yeah, yeah? in a way, because you're you're trying to thin. Yes. Uh, you're trying to thin yeah. your deck uh, of these cards. So if I'm understanding you correctly, then when you play a card that is a, a low value card, like say a two card for an event that yep. isn't really going to hurt you, right? That's going to accomplish something because number one it's going to take it out of your deck so that yep. when you do reshuffle your deck you're not you're going to have one last two card yeah but it also means that um you're going to move up that that track that because you possibly. played it as an event yeah yes? possibly not all cards will contribute to war status okay um and but you may just want to get rid of it because it's a two however now your opponent and this is where the game gets you know becomes like this you know theater of the mind thing because if your opponent realizes that's what you're trying to do the opponent could try to stop you by making a series of moves that you have to respond to with operations. So you might want to play a card for war status or uh, to get it get it out of your hand, but you also realize, wait, if I do this, I'm going to be you know I'm going to be slaughtered. The other part of the game that you were talking about barriers to entry is uh, the supply rules, and this is I think the most uh, important part of Paths of Glory. 
if you have um, units that can't trace a, a route back to, generally for the Allies, it's London. Uh, Germany has two factories. Um, your, those units could be cut off, in which case they're removed from the game completely. Most mm-hmm. units, mm-hmm. if they die in combat, can be recreated through replacement points. And that is a major part of the game, is knowing the supply rules, which can be very unforgiving. So I think you're right that there's a lot of barriers to this. If you've, if you've played and you feel like you are an intermediate-level Twilight Struggle player, you could, prob- you could pick up Paths of Glory very easily. There was just a comment uh, this past week on BGG about whether Paths of Glory was complicated or whether it was a difficult game. And my answer to that is yes, it is. It's not difficult to understand the basic mechanics of the game. Mm-hmm. But, uh, again, you, you mentioned this, this point I was just about to bring up, which is if I played the game, I think, 25 or 30 times, and I forgot this one rule which had to do with which armies could attack into uh, the Near East around Turkey, and I had spent so much time moving my forces there, and then I realized they couldn't even attack uh, where I wanted them to go, and it uh, it didn't ruin the game for me, but I had invested so much that my opponent was just able to trounce me. So um, there's a lot to keep in your head, and this gets back to online play, because if I couldn't play this online and I had to relearn the game more or less from scratch every six months or, or year that I picked it up, I would never play it. So being able to have access to opponents, and it's not just being able to play it online, but having a community of you know, almost 200 people that um, that play it regularly and that you can find an opponent pretty easily, that's a big part of the game for me. Okay. All right. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, again, you know, we're, we're back to the complex game, mm-hmm. um, difficult uh, rule set, and that there's a lot of exceptions, yeah? Yes. Um, but there's a large decision space now, mm-hmm. and then you have this game within a game. Right. Um, you know, sort of... Uh, um, you have this game within a game going on right. while you're playing, while you're trying to manage your deck, mm-hmm. while you're also managing the map. Yeah. So instead of me trying to puzzle out and parse through what it is that makes the game popular when everything mm-hmm. I'm hearing you say would lead me to believe that it wouldn't be, right. um, how, how about we move to uh, what it is you think sets this game in particular mm-hmm. apart from... Not just other card-driven uh, games, but other games in general. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you do look at the general rankings, right. the games rank very highly. Yes. So what is it that, that you feel makes it special that it does so much better or differently than any other game that, you know, we've, we've mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, cursorily or, or, you know, any other game that you can sure. think of? What, what is it about it that mm-hmm. would do that for you? Well, I think, I mean, ironically, all of the reasons that make it difficult to... Uh, access that make it difficult for a new player to pick up the game and just start playing could also be one of the selling points, which is it is a deep, it is a, a cerebral uh, experience. One person on BGG compared uh, looking at the, the initial set, setup map and feeling like you're about to take an accounting exam. And now that's, that's not usually a selling point. But if, <laughs> you know, but if you want a game that is, that is in mentally engaging to the extreme, I think that it is a, a downside, but... I mean, hey, uh, you know, not every game can be, you know, my four-year-old's, you know, Candyland. Uh, right, you know, the, right. There has to – that level of engagement is both, I think, a, a disadvantage but also a strong advantage of the game. So it sounds to me as though uh, after listening – I mean, this is the second time that uh, mental engagement has come up mm-hmm. uh, with you. Um, you know, and, and I, I think I understand where you're coming from with that. I feel very similar – uh, about dominant species, right. you know, dominant species is a game that I can play. I mean, hopefully, we're going to be talking about it soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Jesse would like to uh, work with me on sure. that one. Um, you know, dominant species does the same thing for me, mm-hmm. where I can spend an awful lot of time just sort of staring at the board state mm-hmm. and yes. trying to consider all of the things that might happen, knowing full well that there's a whole lot that I'm just not going to be able to predict. And it's not just about those cards and dominant species. It's about your other players and the unpredictable nature of what the other players are going, you know, to do or consider or try. And just the sheer number of decisions. You mentioned that as well. You know, the the, the sheer number of decisions that are available to you. Um, You know, having not played Paths of Glory, but that that comes to mind, you know, as a a game that has a little bit of a parallel, which is also doing quite well in the rankings, Mm -hmm. considering the fact that it is 
according to some people, not very attractive. It's a long game. It's got a decent amount of chaos thrown in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a pretty elegant rule set, but not the easiest game in the world to pick up. And so I wonder if there is something to that mental engagement. Because quite honestly, by the time I'm done playing Dominant Species, there is a point to what I'm trying to say. Uh-huh. No, when, 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 uh, when I'm done playing Dominant Species, I'm wrong. I'm wrong yeah. out. Right. Um, you know, I, I sit back, whether I've won, whether I've lost. And I feel not just uh, uh, mentally drained. I often feel emotionally drained. Yeah. I feel yeah. just like completely yeah. uh, used, like a, like, a, like a washcloth that's been just wrung out right. because... I've, I've, you know, that game to me, tell me if this is the way Paths of Glory is for you. That game to me is when, when I'm playing that, I am literally, it's what I call a stander. It's a standing game. It's <laughs> yeah. a game where I really can't stay in my seat. I find mm-hmm. myself standing, looking over that board, mm-hmm. and I have been staring at that board for mm-hmm. two and a half to three and a half hours. Right. Just, just intently. My, my attention doesn't waver whether it's my turn or not. Right. And that, and, and, and that's the other reason I brought up Dominant Species um, is because that's a question I have for you about Pazagoy, which is that one of the things I've noticed going to the WBC and kind of observing from a distance um, the, the wargaming community mm-hmm. is that there seems to be this um, sort of a standard of, okay, uh, Bob is going to take his move. And while Bob is taking his move... Uh, Jose can go and grab a sandwich, maybe yeah. take a nap. He can, yeah. he can go and hang yeah. out at the bar and then come back like two hours later yeah. and maybe it's his turn. Mm-hmm. It, it, Dominant Species moves because of the action pawn selection thing. You, you, mm-hmm. you, you can't, your, your turn is not that long. You have these micro turns. It almost reminds me of a Matt Gertz Rondell kind sure. of a thing. Yep. It, does Paths of Glory, though, have that? Like, do you have those turns where it, it takes no, hours where you're, or, or, or a half hour where you're just no. staring at that board? No, no it, it's, it's very much like Twilight Struggle in terms, of how, in terms of how the game feels. Like, there are very different rules and so forth. Um, but if, if, you, if you feel like Twilight Struggle drags, Paths of Glory is not a game for you. But if you feel that level of kind of engagement and uh, interaction between players, then, then Paths of Glory might be something for you to think about. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not aware, actually, of any, uh, yeah, of any real downtime. Someone might be thinking or, or whatever, but the, the turns do feel like they, they're moving along. Okay. Um, and, no, I, I really... I'm glad you brought up Dominant Species, because it, it was a question I was going to ask you, and that is, I was trying to remember back to when I first started playing Paths of Glory, and I, I'm wondering how good we are as as players in predicting uh, whether a game is going to stand the test of time or not. Because when I first played Paths of Glory, I didn't think it was anything amazing. I, I remember feeling overwhelmed and feeling like, okay, this is... I'm, I'm glad I played it once, but mm-hmm. I, I'm not really looking to play this again. And right. um, it, it actually took... I played it face-to-face, and then I played it again online. And playing it online was what made me feel like, wow, okay, I could, you know... In, in ACTS, the automatic card tracking service that I used to play the game, you could, you know, I submit a move in the morning and maybe my opponent submits one later that day and then I send one at night. Maybe you get through three or four turns on a good day. But in between, I could be looking up rules or looking through a card manifest to say, all right, well, these are the cards that have in my hand. Here's what I might be drawing next turn. And so being able to play it online was what really got me to understand the game and, um, it, it, that that process took of, of having it become my favorite game probably took over a year, and you know so. Do you think it has anything to do with the fact though that when you're playing face to face, I don't mm-hmm. know how you feel about it, but like when I'm playing a game face to face, if 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 I begin to take a little bit long yeah. on my turn, right. I feel pressure, of whether or not I no, should right. or not. You know, that's a it's a well, whole another ball of wax, right. but. I feel that kind of internal pressure of, of you know, I really need to, to, to make a decision here. Mm-hmm. So do you think maybe um, 
it helped you playing online where you really you had unlimited time. Yes, there was absolutely. no one staring absolutely. at you as, and yeah. and kind of giving you the eye roll or right. the, the size right. when you would reach for well, something it's, it's and when, then pull your yeah. hand back and like, oh God, here we go right. again. It's when there's a disparity. If your opponent's taking an hour to make a move, you don't feel bad taking an hour. But if your opponent's making a move in 10 seconds, uh, then you do feel badly. And, and this is actually one of, I think, one of the bigger problems with Paths of Glory. And, and this would be true, I think, of many games, but especially of card-driven games. If you know the deck better than your opponent, you're going to win, most likely. I mean, there's an element of luck in all of these games. But uh, in general, if you have, if you're an intermediate or advanced player, it, it's you have to approach the game very differently. There's, there's very little handicapping that goes on here. Mm-hmm. It, you, you have to basically play in a very different way uh, and, and maybe this is a topic for another another episode but you have to play in a very different way and what I think is great about Paths of Glory is when you have two equally matched people now it could be two people that have just sat down that have never seen the game before I think they could have an okay time it could be two ultra advanced players uh, and they'll have a good time but if you have a mismatch you're going right. to have some problems and this is one of the reasons quite honestly why I, I haven't picked it up yet because mm-hmm. you've told that you know you yeah. or, or uh, you've said that rather to me right in the past and said, you know, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I'd be happy to teach it to you, but there's always right. that kind of, uh, you know, segue in, into, and, and, and you're not a cocky or arrogant guy. So I understand that. that what you're saying is the experience factor mm-hmm. really pays off in right. that game. And, and right. uh, but think, going back yeah, to your original right. question, though, about, you know, are we as gamers, how good are we yeah. at predicting long-term success of a game you know honestly i would say based on my experience my answer to that question would be this if you've played a lot of games you get much better at right out of the gate having a feeling whether or not a game is going to stand the test of time Mm -hmm. i'll give you a perfect example santiago de cuba Mm -hmm. if i'm saying that right i hope Mm -hmm. i am oh yeah santiago de cuba is is a uh, a really neat little Euro game based mm-hmm. on the Cuba family that is uh, Cuba, Havana, and now Santiago de Cuba. And it, it has a little bit of a varial board setup. It has, um, you know, some uh, its own little kind of market sort of economy a little bit. Um, it's not really a, it's kind of a bit of a pick up and deliver. Mm-hmm. It's a totally fine game. The first time I played it, I thought, this is decent. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I stopped. I mean, there's there, there's nothing wrong with that game. It's it's a it's a good design. I applaud the guy who, uh, uh, the person who who designed that. It's a solid game. And, and I've kind of come to find that there's a lot of games that I consider solid. Mm-hmm. And what I consider solid is a game that is tight in its mechanics, a game that works very well. You know, you can. It's almost like you you lift up the hood of Santiago de Cuba. And there's a really nice little engine under there. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's not a behemoth, right. but there's a nice little engine. There's some interesting decision points. However, all that being said, I knew within the first couple of plays, this was not going to be a game that, for me at least, was going to stand the test of time. Right. The, the, you know, and and so I think I've gotten better at picking out games that I I think are winners. You know, I remember. Uh, again, not to belabor the point because that would be a whole other episode, but when I when I first got Dominant Species, my first playthrough of that game, I knew the moment I played that game that I thought this is one that's going to be around for a while. Sure. And on the flip side of that was my huge anticipation of Urban Sprawl. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I can't wait for this. This is going to be awesome. It's the same guy that did Dominant Species. And Urban Sprawl is a really nice game. It's a good game. But I knew from the first time I played that it was not in the same league as mm-hmm. Dominant Species for me. Um, so I, I think in answer to your question, I think you, we get better with experience. I think this is why you have so many people who end up feeling very jaded mm-hmm. uh, about be. new games. Yeah. Um, and, and that might be one of the reasons why I you know, kind of thought about starting this when mm-hmm. I read uh, Jesse Dean's article is, is that whole idea of you know, maybe we should be looking at some of these new games that come out and see which ones really are kind of the keepers mm-hmm. and which ones uh, we could, uh, you know, maybe uh, play and enjoy, but then, you know, pass along to somebody else. Right. I, I think it really does depend on where you are as a gamer. Right. Well, and, and where your opponents are. I mean, you know, I remember 
from your first episode that you and Jim basically concluded that with Thunderstone, it you know it really depended on the type of opponents you could find and you know uh, how you could get something to the table, and that's that's a big factor. Um, I feel like uh, Paths of Glory is is a good game, not in spite of its complexity or in spite of its uh, long rule set, but because of those things. I mean, if it if, if suddenly you know uh, there was a new game that had a two page rule set and well, I'll actually give you an example. So um, Ted Racier has designed another game called The First World War, and it's in, in some ways a similar historical time period, of course, but uh, much more simplistic, and I, I played it once and don't really care to play it again. And I think that to some extent for me, and maybe this is true for you for Dominant Species, like you feel as if, um, I don't know, you feel as if the, the complex nature of the game is what makes it so great. And, um, I think you yeah. could be right. I think yeah. you could have hit on something there because that would also explain the enduring kind of uh, success of ASL. I mean, you, sure. I, right. I don't think you. I mean, Good I played point. a lot of Squad Leader mm-hmm. when I was younger. Actually, that that was that was my thing, uh, and, and really enjoyed it. the original Squad Leader, Cross of Iron, Crescendo mm-hmm. of Doom, all those. Not not yeah. ASL, but just regular Squad Leader, and that uh, you know, and I played Panzer Blitz mm-hmm. and Panzer Leader in those games, and. Uh, you know, and and like you said, they were fascinating to me because of their complexity, especially mm-hmm. squad leader. You know, when you look at line of sight and calling mm-hmm. in for artillery right. fire and uh, the spotting rounds. I mean, <laughs> geez, there were there were rules for spotting rounds and right. then fire for effect and all of these different things, and it, it really immersed me into that situation. Mm-hmm. And and so. Maybe there is something to that idea that, you know, these games that are super complex, these uber complex games, if you're willing to make the investment in the game, right. I wonder if that also has something to do with it. It's, it's that return on investment. Yeah. In other words, I have almost nothing invested in learning, um, you know, Santiago de Cuba. I have nothing invested in, in uh, a game I got from my kids' uh, 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 it happens, which is mm-hmm. a Stefan Feld title. It's it's a cute little, uh, fun little dice kind of right. allocation and rolling game. It's a blast. It's fun to play. But I really kind of had nothing invested in learning it. Whereas, you know, there are some games that I feel that you need to invest yes. time. And there are games that I played where I've invested that time and felt I got no return on the investment right. and, and found that ultimately. I really wish I'd had those hours of my life yeah. back, you yeah. know? But then there are other games that, that I have played where I, I feel that I've actually gotten a return on that investment. So mm-hmm. if I'm hearing you correctly, you, you really feel Paths of Glory falls into that mold, yeah? It does. And it's not it's not so much just learning the rules. I mean, for instance, it's not enough to just, you know, have memorized the rule book. The, the return on investment comes from feeling like you have been able to understand the rules and have adjusted your playing of the game in order to uh, use those rules to their maximum effect so that you understand, I I know I can do these sets of maneuvers and that's going to help me for these reasons. And uh, yeah, so I I would agree with that. Um, I also wanted to say, you know, one thing I want to be careful though is to say that, you know, for me, I don't really think of there being war gamers and other gamers. I just think of war gaming as, uh, you know, I mean, Tom Bassel always talks about trading in the Mediterranean, so I'll use that as a as a <laughs> genre of game. So, so there are the trading in the Mediterranean or civilization uh, type games. Right. I just think of wargaming as a particular um, domain or, or aspect of gaming. And so, I, I would really encourage if, if people are listening and they they feel like they want to take on a kind of mental challenge. I mean, Paths of Glory, by all means, it, it's great. The other thing that it has going for it is, of course, the historical uh, simulation. I wouldn't like this game if it was the exact same board, the exact exact same cards, but it was about cyborgs fighting in outer space. So, I mean, so yeah, talk a little bit about sure. that. I mean, what, what, what is it? I mean, I know you're a historian right. for, for those of, uh, uh, you know, for those people who don't know you, I mean, you're a, you're a professor mm-hmm. of history for Penn State University. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, so you have a built-in passion for history. Right. Um, I have a, a, a built-in kind of passion for history, something I've always been interested in. Uh, but, you know, theme is very important. Like, you know, you mm-hmm. mentioned Tom Bassel. I mean, right. I, I, I don't know how many times I've heard Tom say, if it had a space theme, mm-hmm. I'd be all over it, right. right? But since it's trading in the Mediterranean, not mm-hmm. so much, right? right. Um, although he consistently resists uh, Merchant of Venus, which Eric uh, Summerer is always trying to, to get him to play. But uh, I, I digress. Mm-hmm. Anyway, 
the, the point I'm trying to make is how important really is that theme to you? Where you know is that something that not for every game? It, it's not important to me for every single game. Um, but I think it's one of the reasons why I really like Paths of Glory. It's the um, like Twilight Struggle, for instance. The cards reference historical people, yeah. historical events, and there's um, you know it, it is a it's a game that makes you feel some of the major choices that the historical figures actually you know, face themselves. Um, so yeah, that, that's really important to me. And, uh, I feel like, you know, like I said, Paths of Glory recreates that pretty well. But is that unique to war games? Uh, no, you know, again, no, you said really theme so. doesn't really matter to right. you in other games. I mean, like right now we're sure. sitting here, uh, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, we just had one of the largest hailstorms uh, that I can remember in recent memory. We have no power. Mm-hmm. Uh, but fortunately my laptop's charged up here and we're in the middle of playing, uh, Sekigahara. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I, you know, this is my second playthrough of this game. I love this game. I think mm-hmm. this is a great game, full of agonizing kind of decisions and choices and uh, tactics, strategy, bluffing. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of seems to have it all. Yeah. And yet, uh, I haven't finished reading through the historical notes on this. Mm-hmm. I would enjoy this game, even though I know absolutely nothing right. about the Correct. history of this unification of Japan. Exactly. Now. One of the cool things about these kinds of games, though, is that it's made me interested in it. Exactly. So I I will probably finish reading those historical notes very soon. I Mm -hmm. I may dig a little bit deeper Mm -hmm. into this history. But I I, I think you you hit on something, though, which is that, like, in most Euros, you know, we always hear this term pasted on theme. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you made the statement that theme doesn't matter to you. but. With war games, though, it, it really does seem to. Like, for me, I mean, I was drawn to Washington's War because of my mm-hmm. interest in the American Revolution. Right. I, I had read that book that you loaned me, Almost a Miracle. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal book. And made me really it refired my passion for that particular topic. And so, you know, do war games really... Do you think they need that? I mean, is the historical context something that is absolutely essential um, for your enjoyment of the game? Or, like I'm talking about with Sekigahara here, I hope I'm saying that right, yeah. um, I, I I would enjoy it either way. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Well, well two things. First of all, I, I think there are very thematic games that are not war games. I mean, so we've played 1960, Making of a President, yeah. which I find, I know, I know, you know everything, <laughs> but, but I find that to be very thematic, and I like that game very much. Yeah, the issues track. Right. I hate the issues track. The uh, As for Sekigahara, you know, this is a lot like, um, I think it's thematically, I think it's a better game, frankly, uh, than, I like it better than Hammer of the Scots, which is another favorite game. I'm really enjoying it, too. I don't, but there's a different level of complexity and I don't say that in a bad way or even in a comparative way, but there's a different level of compar- yes. complexity between this and, and, and Paths of Glory, which is still much less thematic than something that's very, um, say, you know, say something like Case Blue or something, that, that is very, very a huge monster game. So, you know, I, I think that in terms of complexity, frankly, Paths of Glory is probably a mid-weight uh, war game, but understanding how to implement those rules is part of learning the game. Um, I I think that it's difficult. I think it's harder for a war game to feel like the theme is pasted on, um, because even just the map, even the, the yeah, units. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it it to me feels just like a different type of gaming that is more thematic. Um, and so again, there can be you know strategic games that have nothing to do with conflict that are highly thematic, and there can be war games that are very abstract or something like Titan. You know, Titan's a science fiction theme game, or Lord of the Rings. I mean, there's no sort of historical relevance there, right? But um, they, there's a. I think that for historical war gaming, there is that link to history, which is something that I like. Right. Yeah. Right. I did want to mention uh, two other uh, quick points. One was, um, so I, I said at the beginning I was going to talk about Ted Racier's other games. He has many, many of them. If you uh, are interested in this style of, of game we've been talking about, but you're more of a World War II buff, he made uh, uh, a World War II game that's also car-driven, Barbarossa to Berlin. That's kind of considered, I think, the sequel to Paths of Glory. Uh, he also has, uh, as I mentioned, the game that I didn't like, The First World War, which is a more uh, basic version of Paths of Glory. There are also two other reprints, or we could call them readaptations, uh, by him that are on the GMT P500 pre-order list. Uh, one is 1914, Glory's End, uh, and it covers the Western Front. 
And uh, then when eagles fight, which covers World War I in the east, uh, basically the Russian and Austrian empires. So there's, uh, there are other games. If, if only one theater interests you, and this is another part of wargaming, it's that you can kind of pick and choose geographically where you want right. to focus. So, yeah, like you, for example, hate naval games. Don't you, like them, You will right. not play a naval game. No, not a big fan of naval games. Can you combat. give me any reason why or yeah. just... I like, don't the, like boats. I like the grand. Well, you mentioned at the beginning. I just like the grand sweep of history, you know, because I don't like squad level games either. You know, I just and and if it's only you know if a game is focused, like Jutland is supposed to be the best World War One naval game, and even though I love Paths of Glory, it just doesn't interest me. And mm-hmm. it's because I like that giant sweep of history. And you like the large scale, you correct? Like large yeah. Scale. Now, what about uh, a Pursuit of Glory? Was that the same uh, person, or great, was that somebody different? Great question. Uh, no, it was a different designer, uh, but it. With with uh, I believe with Ted Racier's permission, they re-implemented it. Uh, Pursuit of Glory is more recent. It covers primarily the Near East, and that is a part of Paths of Glory, but it's a kind of minor offshoot. And so um, it's a, it's more complicated. Uh, units can have multiple uh, nationalities. That's important for Paths of Glory for uh, combat and activation. So if you really if you love Lawrence of Arabia, you may want to pick it up. But it's um, I read through the rule book. I even thought about starting a game once, but then I thought to myself, why wouldn't I just play Paths of Glory? I mean, so so okay. it becomes, um, so, to some extent, having a favorite game that you really love can become difficult because it makes you less inclined to try something new, and right. I think that's what I fell into with that game. Well, uh, let me ask you a couple other things real mm-hmm. quick. Um, one of the questions that I like to try to ask, um, you know, in all of the rich history of two episodes of this yes. podcast so far... Um, <laughs> Although I don't know when this one will air. Anyway, um, one of the questions that I ask is, uh, I think you've already answered why you think the game uh, has stood the test of time and and what you find special and unique about it. Um, But you also talked about the fact that this is a game that's very difficult for you to get to the table other than online. Mm -hmm. Um, Is this game still in your collection? Absolutely, Uh, even though you don't have any, you know, live opponents that you can play it with. And, and then I guess my question would be why? Yeah. Well, um, I, I do think that I would bring it to, um, uh, the WBC. They, they do run tournament there. I played it last year. Um, I don't know if, um, I don't know why. I guess I kind of feel to some extent, if I'm going to play a game online a lot, I feel like I should have it in my collection. And that's just kind of a personal decision that I made that I feel like I should have that kind of. Um, well, one, if I could pull it out if someone was interested in playing and I would have it. Mm-hmm. I also got the new GMT Deluxe with the fancy map. Nice. Um, but I, no, I am going to keep it in my collection, and I guess my reason for it is I feel like if it's if it's a favorite, I should have the game and support the people that made it. So that's I guess that's my reason for doing it. That's a good reason. Yeah. That's certainly a good reason, because I don't know exactly how the finances and yeah. all of that works as far as the ACT systems, <laughs> and, and right. you know, I don't know... Um, you know what, if any kind of remuneration no, that uh, there's, there's not designers any, get. In fact, so. Act is a is a free service, um, and they they do take donations. So the people that run Acts are just do it on a volunteer basis. Right. Um, the publisher obviously has to give permission, right. um, and GMT has done that. And it's a great thing about the hobby that yeah. you know generally you find that designers and publishers are mm-hmm. willing to allow people to do that and develop those things for right. people like you who mm-hmm. you know love the game but you know might not have the actual opportunity to right. play it if you were only able to play it face to face. So I think you know that's uh, you know that that's a, a good thing uh, as long as you know the designers don't feel that you know the the people who own the intellectual property aren't mm-hmm. feeling that they're somehow losing out on that right. but you know again uh, you play online and and mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that you're um, off base on that because I I've kind of discovered that uh, you know I I recently picked up an iPad mm-hmm. and I got rid of some games that I had once I had them on the iPad mm-hmm. And I'm kind of finding now that I wish I hadn't gotten yeah. rid of them. Right. You know, it's not that I don't enjoy them on the iPad. As a matter of fact, I think the iPad uh, handles some of the bookkeeping mm-hmm. just just immensely well right. and makes the games play more quickly and possibly even more enjoyably. But there, 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 there comes a time then when I have a hankering to actually physically take it out, yeah. play it. Uh, see it absolutely um you know and know that it's something you know that i have right uh, because you know i think until we get to a point where as a uh, a gaming community where we have these kind of tabletops mm-hmm. um that oh, people yeah. have been talking about you know that the ipad is a huge leap forward 
but it's still a, a small screen. It's mm-hmm. still, you're yeah. still kind of huddled around and clustered right. around or passing it about. Yeah. And one of the things that I find quite daunting, actually, you know, I've tried a couple of times with you to play some games online, mm-hmm. is that I need to see the whole dang board. Right. And I have a real hard time when I'm having to kind of scroll. Right. And, uh, you know, I, my, I guess the way my brain works is I kind of, like to encompass the whole situation where mm-hmm. everything is at once. Right. And I find it becomes very hard for me to make decisions when I don't have the entire decision space in front of me. In fact, that, that's actually a point that I wanted to get to, and that is, you know, we've been talking about the, the complex nature of, of Paths of Glory, but I have a couple pieces of advice if, if someone did want to start playing it. And one would be, to you can pick up um, an earlier edition uh, for very little money, uh, or, or buy the deluxe one, brand new, even that's not expensive, and, and set it up in an out-of-the-way place, even if you're playing it online, and set up the physical map, uh, punch out the counters, um, and, and go about the task of just setting up the map. That'll help you kind of get oriented geographically to where things are. And, and if just like you said, Jeff, if you want to see the whole board, you'll have it there in front of you. Um, the other thing I was going to say is... Um, you know, one of the things we talked about in the Thunderstone episode was modifications and expansions. And so Paths of Glory uh, is played in different ways. So, for instance, there are several variants. I was um, aware of that. Yeah, there are. And one of them is uh, actually was created by Ted Racier. Uh, it's called the Historical Variant. And that variant with a slightly modified, a few slight modifications, is the one that's played at the WBC. And it's designed to make the game more historic, feel more historical, and to make some of the events that are less likely to occur in a regular game, like America's entry into the war or the Bolshevik Revolution, those things happen more often. So there are variants. There's also other variants that haven't even played. Um, personally, I, but I don't think those variants necessarily make the game better. I think that they could, uh, they make the game feel different, and you use different strategies. Vanilla regular Paths of Glory is still a great game, in my opinion. Um, so, so that's something to look for. There's also a published, GMT put out, um, a player's aid, which is essentially, think of it like a magazine. It has some strategy articles, it has articles about these variants, and it also has a few new cards and a few new counters. Uh, personally, I don't like playing with them. Uh, I don't like the new cards. You can play with them online in the ACTS system, but, you know, if one of the themes of this, uh, this podcast is how you keep things feeling new if, it, if a game's 13 years old. Uh, it is worthwhile to put out, point out that those things exist. The strategy articles alone in POG are really good. They're, they're really worth reading. So even if you just buy the player's aid for that, you can buy it on Amazon or um, in the BGG marketplace pretty inexpensively. So um, that's something to consider if you're thinking about picking up the game or even if you just want to you know, read more about it. Excellent. Um, well, so it sounds like this is one that uh, you feel has stead, uh, has stead. So it sounds like this is a game that you feel really has stood the test of time. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And that's going to stay in your collection. Yes. And uh, that you think people should not shy away from, but mm-hmm. w- with the understanding that there's a definite commitment right. in time. Exactly. Involved, but that your return on investment, mm-hmm. that seems to me to be, you yeah. know, after talking with you, that's kind of a, a thread that I've been able to pull at, which right. is this idea of complexity as a return on investment. Yep. And if, if you have a game like this one, it sounds, mm-hmm. or, or like other games that, you know, people know and love, you know, I, I think of even so, certain Euros, like Twilight Imperium 3. Of course. Yeah. You know, I, where, you know, you have a 50-page rule book, mm-hmm. or some of these other kind of thematic games, you know, I mean, I've talked to people who play Arkham Horror all the mm-hmm. time. Right. That's another one that, you know, I don't have my geek badge for, I've never played that. But it's my understanding that, you know, that it's very rich thematically, but yes. that there's a definite investment in time that you have to take in order to learn yeah. that game. And so yeah. maybe one of the things that makes a game great is the idea of do you get return on your investment for mm-hmm. the time that you yeah. play? Do you either – and I guess maybe the last thing I'd like to talk about is what is that return on investment? Mm-hmm. Is the return is the return a simple enjoyment mm-hmm. or is the return – becoming better right. at the game what what would you say is the return on investment that yes. you look for in paths of glory mm-hmm. or maybe in games in general i mean or is it different with a euro than it is with a war game what, what would you say to that i think there's a comment there are differences but i think one of them is that it feels intensely thematic and, and the comparison to arkham horror is a good one now i'm not a fan of that game but you know if you are you know 
if you're maybe a very casual gamer, but you love the you know the Lovecraft mythos, then this game would really excite you and make you feel excited to play it. And that's kind of the way I feel about Paths of Glory is that you know if if you have a real interest in history like we both do, right. then there's going to be an extra level of enjoyment that someone that you know really could care less about history or really wasn't part of their hobby or whatever right. that that person would be less likely to see. Paths of Glory, or really any of the complex card-driven games, Twilight Struggle or um, Wilderness War or anything like that, as something they'd want to pick up. So, so yeah, you're all you're right about the return on investment piece, but I guess it's it's very individualistic. I, I guess it would have to be because yeah. what you're what I'm hearing you say is that that return on investment is dependent on how willing you are to make that investment in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. In other words, you know, uh, since I don't have a huge um, love of Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I'm really willing to spend all that time yeah. playing games of Arkham Horror, which I understand can last anywhere from, you know, two and a half to six hours, depending yeah. so on, on how game. the game goes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe that is something else that, you know, you have to consider is, is that that return on investment, you have to be willing to make the investment. Mm-hmm. It has to be something that at least yeah. interests you or fires your imagination up because, you know, listening to your answer, you spoke more about enjoyment than you mm-hmm. did about wanting to master the game. Like, I didn't really hear right. you talking about... I mean, you did talk earlier yeah. about levels of players, yeah. but it was more in, in terms of experience, whereas mm-hmm. what you just talked about now was more about the thematics of it and your enjoyment of it and the fact that your love of history gives you a deeper enjoyment yeah. for that game. So, you know, maybe that's a prerequisite. That's an ingredient that you need, um, you know, in, in order to find that game that's going to be something that's going to stick with you for a long time. You have to have something that you're willing to invest the time mm-hmm. in. And then actually get something back. You have right. to get the return. Yeah. If you don't get I the return, yeah. then, you know, it becomes an experience that was mm-hmm. frustrating. I agree. Um, you know, one of the things, let's just talk here about Sekigahara for a second. Uh, do you think this is going to be a game that two years from now you're still going to have in your collection and want to play? My initial reaction would probably be yes, and there's a couple reasons for that. Um, and it has nothing to do with the thematics. It, it, it doesn't have, now maybe it will eventually as I learn more about this period of Japanese history, but to me, the reason it's a keeper is, uh, so far, uh, I've only played it twice, so that's mm-hmm. why you know I haven't really opened well, it up for a podcast yeah. episode yet. But the, the, the idea is, for me, this is a game that seems to be a nice match between complexity and interesting decision space. Yep. And and the, the sort of built-in um, uh, frustration of not always having the cards you need to activate. You, you might be set up perfectly to do something that would be an amazingly uh, brilliant move for you mm-hmm. to do uh, from a tactical or strategic standpoint on the map. But if you don't have the card you need, if you don't have yeah. that loyalty, then you're not going to be able to take advantage of that opportunity. And so then the game becomes about maximizing what you can do, mm-hmm. um, sometimes rather than what you should do. Yeah. And, and so that, to me, says possibly there's going to be a lot of replay value in this yeah, game. I agree. Because it's not always going to be about these are the paths that I need to block, mm-hmm. these are the locations that I need to hold in order to win the game end of story. Right. Uh, you, you might have those strategic long-term ideas, but whether or not you can execute that is completely anybody's right. guess based on the cards you have. So I, I agree. You know, that, that, that's what I would say about that, yeah. uh, at least at this point. Right. Well, why don't we agree that episode 39 or whatever it's going to be <laughs> two years from now, we can go back and, you know, reassess. Because I feel the same way to you. I feel like it's a very strong game. Uh, I would, you know, I'm looking forward to the power coming back on and playing it more. I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, switching sides the next time we get together. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, I'd be interested in that as almost an experiment because I don't know how, like I said at the beginning, how good we are at predicting what's going to make us happy. Right. You know, I don't right. know how good we are. Um, and, and, Frank, and we don't know what's going to come out between now and two right. years from now. Because, yeah, because to me, another strong, strong contender is Strike of the Eagle. Mm-hmm. I mean, That's I've played game. that game a few times, and boy, I really enjoy that mm-hmm. game. I, I, I think that that game is just amazing. Um, for a number of different reasons, um, what, you know, but again, you know, is that something that's going to stand the test of time? You know, who knows? That's part of the purpose of the podcast. Right. Um, well, Justin, I want to thank you very much Thanks, for uh, stopping by and sharing your expertise on this game because mm-hmm. I don't have any expertise well. on it, but it's a game that, you know, I personally have been very curious about. And like mm-hmm. I said, I've, I've been so close, you know, to hitting that ad to cart, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many times GMT did their sale last right. year. And I was like, 
maybe I'll pick up Paths of Glory. I was really thinking about it. I was leaning. As a matter of fact, it was in my card. And then yeah. I ended up, you know, swapping it out for sure. something else. And, and you know, I, 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 it's, again, you know, you've got me curious about the mm -hmm. game now because I do love Twilight Struggle so much. And I, I do enjoy... Uh, some of these card-driven games quite a bit, especially with mm -hmm. the historical flavor uh, and the text. And um, I appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts and your views and, and why you think the game is is a definite keeper. Excellent. Um, the last thing I, I'd like to ask you, though, mm -hmm. um, and maybe I'll have to go back in the magic of editing and see if I can splice this back in. What complaints, if any, mm -hmm. do you have about this game? Because we haven't, so far, it's been a love fest. Sure. Well, well, no, not entirely. Um, because one complaint, uh, and this reflects what I said before, is uh, you really need to really enjoy the game. You need an equally matched opponent. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. one. That's one. It's not a complaint against the game, but it's just one of the features, especially because. You, you will know what is in your opponent's deck after you've played it a little bit. So you can you, you can anticipate that I might not want to do this move because he, you know my opponent might be holding this particular card. Whereas if you're a brand new player, you've got enough trouble figuring out your own cards, let alone what your yeah, opponent yeah. has. So, so that struggles very much the same way. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that's one major issue with the game, I'll say. It's not really a complaint. Uh, the other, of course, is like you pointed out, Jeff, playing time, uh, finding those equally matched opponents. It's very difficult. Um, are there structural or rules parts of the game that I don't like? Yeah. No, no, I really, I have to say no, um, because like I said, learning those rules quirks is is part of understanding the game. So um, there might be some people that complain about the, I mean, the game feels very bizarre. Like you have a, uh, you know, a very, you know, you can have a, a, a incredibly weak unit that just encircles another, and suddenly that other unit is effectively paralyzed and, and could be removed from the game. And other, some people feel like that. That makes the game feel strange or unusual. But if you understand that, that's part of the supply rules I talked about earlier. If you right. understand that, then you uh, you have to plan for it and you have to make sure there are no breaks in your lines. And, and the game is very much about establishing fronts and having no lines between your troops or no no gaps between them. So that's um, that's part of the the game that I appreciate. As a, but I imagine other people might see it as a, a, a as a maybe tracking. a negative. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, but that's it. Okay. All right. Excellent. Well, again, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. And, uh, you know, if anybody has any comments or uh, questions for mm -hmm. Justin uh, or myself, you can feel free to post it on the uh, 2d6.org um, uh, webpage or on our guild here on Board Game Geek. We'd also like to thank the people at 2d6.org for their generous support and hosting of the Longview podcast. Uh, so until next time, uh, I'm Jeff Gamble. And thank you for listening.